need to, need to talk today about some difficult, some heavy things. Um, so just get, get ready for that. Be in prayer for me as we cover some, some complicated issues, some very important issues. We're in Acts chapter 10 today. And before we get into the Word, I need to address something that's, happened, that's been happening in the news this past week. Now, some of you may not be aware, but many of you probably are. This past week, the United Methodist Church uh, came together and held a big worldwide conference to make a decision on how they were going to stand on issues of human sexuality. And I know this is not something we enjoy talking about. Um, I promise I won't spend a long time here. I did preach a whole sermon on this uh, last year, and if you weren't here then, you might be saying, well, thank God, because that would have been really awkward. But if you want to know what I said, uh, you can contact me and I'll tell you where it is on the internet and you can listen to the whole thing. But let me just, let me just say this right now. First of all, I pray for our brothers and sisters in the Methodist uh, denomination. They are our brothers and sisters. Um, I have family members, including my dad, who were raised in that church. There's a lot of people down through history who've been brought to Christ by that church. And any church, no matter what the name on the outside of the door is, any name that proclaims the name of Jesus, God grieves when there's division. God grieves when within his family there is disunity and disharmony and disagreement. And so we need to pray for them. We need to continue to pray for them, even though they've already had a vote. Um, that the issue is not done. So let me just share this. I think we can all agree, if you spend any time in the Word of God, and if you are honest about yourself, we are all fundamentally broken right? I mean, just we are just broken people, and that's, just, that's a result of our estrangement from God, and the only thing that will fix us is coming to Him. In fact, that's one way you can look at salvation. What is salvation? It's when we come to Jesus and say, I'm broken and I can't fix myself, and Jesus starts that process of putting us back together in His image. And that's the process that a lot of people in this room are going through. If you're a believer in Jesus, you are part of that, but you and I are still broken, right? We all are being put together by God. And part of our brokenness is our desires. We desire things that aren't good for us. Just because your body longs for it doesn't mean you should have it. We desire things like wealth, nothing wrong with wealth, but we desire it in some, in some perverse and wrong ways, power, approval of others, uh, pleasure, success, and, and certainly sex is a desire that can, that can be used in a way that is unhealthy for us, that just contributes to our brokenness. You know, the Bible is very clear. There are plenty of modern-day issues that you and I can debate about what the Bible says about this or that and, and where the Bible may not speak directly about something, but when it talks about sexuality, the Bible is very clear in, what, in, in the reason God created that act. It was a gift to humankind to bind together a man and a woman within marriage and therefore to build the family, therefore to exalt, because that marriage, that marriage of a man and a woman points to the love of Christ for his church. And any other use of that act, whether it's looking at an image on a computer, whether it's uh, you know, two teenagers sneaking off together, whether it's a man having an affair, whether it's uh, same-sex marriage, all of that is just part of our brokenness. It's desire that's there, that's real, that doesn't lead to happiness, that doesn't lead to wholeness, that leads to despair, that leads to destruction. And so God, in His commands in Scripture, they are for our good. Now, after this week, uh, after what happened within the United Methodist Church, I, I 
used to serve in Houston at a church. There was a Methodist church just down the street. Uh, there was a, a female pastor on their staff um, who I still follow on social media, and she posted something. She said, it makes me sad that my denomination has chosen to demonize my gay brothers and sisters. And I know this woman. I don't know her well, but I know her well enough to know she knows Jesus. She loves Jesus. Her heart, her intentions are good. And I agree with her to this point. The church historically has done a bad job of showing broken people that God loves them. We've been way too intent on criticizing, condemning, proving that we're right. And so especially people from that community think, well, you hate me. And that's on us. And, and, and so my friend, her whole point is, I wanted my denomination to say, we accept you. We accept everything about you. And I agree I agree that we need to go miles in the opposite direction to say to everyone we know, Jesus loves you, loves you. Not the person I wish you were, loves you. You are welcome in my church. You are welcome at First Baptist Church. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you're continuing to do, we want you here. We want you to hear the gospel preached. We want you to worship with us. We want you to experience the love of a church family. Don't ever let anyone tell you, you have to be a certain kind of person to come into First Baptist Church. At the same time, here's where I disagree with my friend. We also owe people the truth. We owe them the love of God. We can't hold that back from them. But we also have to share with them the truth of what God's Word says. Even on issues that are hard. Even on issues that make people uncomfortable. Even on issues that make us seem culturally backward. That make others criticize us. We have to say, yes, but... God was clear. God wants what's best for you. And he loves you enough to tell you the truth. And so my commitment to you as a pastor, and, and you hold me accountable to this, is that I want to I lead our church to always be a church that offers genuine love to everybody and at the same time offers the truth as best we can discern it from the Word of God. And we've got to do both. See, if we're just a, a church that offers the truth without love, then we're just a little camp of proud Pharisees. And if we offer just love without truth, well, it's not actually love. We're just giving people permission to head down a road that leads to their destruction. So we have to be, and every church has to be, a church that offers truth and love in equal measure. Now, we need to get into the Word this morning. And by the way, if you, have, you want to ask me questions, we want to, you want to talk further about this, my door is open, email me, call me. I would love to have that conversation, but I need to make the transition to our message today, and so it's going to be kind of an awkward transition, awkward segue. What better way to do that than by telling a cute story about one of your kids, right? So when my son Will was a little bitty guy still in diapers, one day I decided, I'm just going to, we're just going to have a boy's trip. Will and me, we're going to go see my mom and dad out in the country where I grew up, and it I distinctly remember it was the first time Will had ever been away from his mom overnight. Now, if you're a dad and you've got your little toddler child, what is your number one goal? Women are like, well, keep them safe, right? Don't, you know, don't lose them. Make sure they get home safe. No, that's number two. Number one is make sure they sleep that night, right? 
So, so we got to the country and we roamed all around that pasture and we ran and we climbed and we jumped and we walked and we hiked and we laughed and we played. And I wore that boy out as best I could. And so when night fell, my mom set up one of those little play cribs in the little bedroom where he was going to stay. And I took him in there and told him a story and I, I prayed over him and I laid him down. I said, good night, Will. And I went and I sat down in the den with my mom and dad and I thought, okay. Now I can just relax for maybe an hour or so before we go to bed. And I hadn't even breathed two breaths when I felt this little presence at my right-hand side. And I turned, and there stood my son, huge grin on his face, and he said, I back. (laughs) (laughs) He wasn't back for long, I'll tell you that. (laughs) We're in a series right now called What the World Needs Now. And what the world needs now is, more than anything else, what it's always needed is reconciliation with God. Whose job is that to make that happen? 2 Corinthians 5.18 is one of those scriptures which if you don't have it memorized, you need to. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, All this is from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's our job. That's our number one responsibility. We are God's team. Sent into the world to reconcile people to himself through Jesus Christ. And in the book of Acts, we see that happening. We see the original church and how, man, they, did, they weren't caught up yet in old traditions and they weren't caught up yet in divisions and they didn't let anything stop them. In fact, in fact, if you read the book of Acts, you can, you can see Acts as the story of the church busting down barriers left and right. Left and right. The devil would, would hem them in. He would think, okay, I've got them trapped. They can't spread now. And just like little Will, they'd climb over that barrier and they'd say, I'm back. And they'd keep on spreading the word. And so as we're studying Acts, I hope, I hope it's giving you this little, this little yearning in your spirit, this, this sense of, yeah, that's the way it should be here at First Baptist. Yeah, that's what I wish we were doing. I wish we were that kind of church because that's what I think God's destiny for us is. I'm just dumb enough to believe that God is going to do this again in us. And if I wouldn't be here as your pastor if I didn't think that. We've been challenging you all year. I mean, I know it's only the first of March, but and we will continue to challenge you to be all in for God. We've got four specific commitments. You know about them if you've been here before. If you're new and you don't know about them or you haven't gotten started, grab some paperwork on the all-in table to your right, out that door, join us in this because we want to see what God can do when we go all in for Him. And the book of Acts is a great story of what that looks like. So think about it. Think about the barriers that have already been busted down. Remember, we started with Jesus ascending into heaven and He left behind 120 confused, uneducated, poorly resourced people who didn't know what to do next. And it looked like the devil had them. He's like, okay, I've got 120 here, maybe a few hundred in Galilee. But they've never shown any evidence of being powerful. And then the day of Pentecost showed up. And on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell on those men and women. And they suddenly had power. They suddenly had courage and boldness and wisdom that they'd never had before. And not only that, there was also this ability to speak new languages. Now, I think that only lasted for that day in that instance. I, there's no evidence in Scripture that Peter was out there speaking other languages the rest of his life. But it brought new people into the church so that the early church from its very beginning was multilingual. So the language barrier was broken. You didn't have to speak Aramaic. 
to come to Christ anymore. That barrier fell down. And then another barrier fell down when the church suddenly realized, hey, we shouldn't depend just on these 12 men who we call apostles. They're not supposed to do all the work. Yeah, they walked with Jesus. Yes, he personally chose them, but we all have the same Holy Spirit. So we were all able to serve him. And now there's thousands upon thousands of people all over Jerusalem spreading the gospel. And that's another barrier. And then persecution broke out and the church scattered and another barrier was broken because now the church is all over Israel not just in Jerusalem. And we looked at it last week about how Philip, one of the original seven deacons, suddenly realized he had incredible gifts for preaching and working God's powerful miracles. And so he goes and he preaches the gospel in Samaria, full of all these people that hate the Jews and the Jews hate them back. And Samaritans, through the preaching of Philip, are coming to Christ left and right. And then God does a bizarre thing. That barrier is broken. And you would think he would say, okay, Philip, you're doing a great job with the Samaritans. I want you to stay there as long as you can. But instead, God says, no, Philip, I know things are going great. You're, you're being very successful. I want you to leave that behind and go stand in the middle of the desert. And that's exactly what he does. And guess what? God actually had a plan. Because out there in the middle of the desert, while Philip is standing there staring at his iPhone, not really, but while he's standing there biding his time, along comes a man in a chariot who happens to be of a different color. This man is black. Not, not only is he a black man, he happens to be the treasurer of the nation of Ethiopia who has been in Jerusalem studying the God of Israel. He's holding a scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he just so happens to be reading a passage, Isaiah 53, that speaks of the crucifixion of Israel's Messiah. And so Philip climbs into the chariot with him, leads him to Christ. There's water by the side of the road. They stop. That man gets out. Philip baptizes him into the faith. And that man takes the gospel with him back to the continent of Africa. Boom. There's two more barriers now. You don't have to look like a Jew anymore, and you don't even have to be from their continent. But there's still a significant barrier. If you're a, a first century Jewish Christian, you're saying to yourself, okay, fine, so Africans have the gospel now, but they live way over there in Africa. I don't have to be around them. Um, but, but these Gentiles around me, these Romans, I'm not sharing the gospel with them because this is the Jewish Messiah. He's ours. He's none of their business. God wasn't content with that. God was going to knock that barrier down. And I want you to see how it happens because it's a very interesting story. Acts chapter 10, verse 1, at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. So let me tell you what's going on here. Cornelius is not your ordinary Roman soldier. He was what the Jews would call a God-fearer, meaning he hadn't converted to Judaism, he hadn't been circumcised, he hadn't gone through all those rituals, but he believed in the God of Israel, the God of Scripture. He prayed to the Lord. He did righteous acts. What better person for God to use as the bridge to break down another barrier? But look how he's going to do it. It's an interesting way. Verse 3. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. Now we're, we don't see this because we skipped over chapter 9, but here's the interesting thing about that part. 
Remember Philip? I talked, talked about him a moment ago. He's the one who led the Ethiopian to Christ, the one who preached the gospel in Samaria. He's the guy who's tearing it up, right? He's in Caesarea right now. You would think that God would say, um, Cornelius, you're such a good man. I want you to come into my family. Go across town. Find Philip. But he doesn't. He says, send for Peter, who's 30 miles away in Joppa. Why? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us why, but here's my guess. Purely my guess. I think God knew it was time for the apostles to get on board. Philip was already on board. Philip had already shared the gospel with people who weren't Jewish. None of the apostles had. See, God was over here. God had already broken down some barriers, but the church was back here. Have you ever been in a church and thought to yourself, you know, I think God's way out there and we're lagging behind? It happens. So God said, send for Peter. I'm going to confront him with what I'm doing. And I'm going to get to him in a very interesting way. So look at verse 9. About noon the following, way, following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, meaning the guys sent from Cornelius, Peter went up on a roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. So can you picture that? Picture a big white bundle descending from heaven, and when it gets to the ground, it flops open, and what's inside? It contained, verse 12, it contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And if you're a hunter, that's your favorite verse in the entire Bible, right? Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. So what's this about? This is about... The dietary code of the Jews, brought down from the time of Moses. The Jews for centuries, ever since the time of Moses, have followed this code. There are certain foods they do not eat. They are considered unclean. Peter has grown up a Jew. He has never eaten pork. He's never eaten shellfish of any kind. He's never eaten catfish. He's never eaten... There's tons of things. In fact, in the part of our Bible reading we're in now, we're in the Torah. You're, you're hearing about some of these laws and you're going... What in the world? God gave the Israelites the law because they were headed into the promised land full of pagan people who had weird practices. And God said, I want you to be different. I want you to be distinct. Here are some ways to keep yourself separate from them. And now God is saying to Peter, all that is obsolete. That was for a time. That was for the children of Israel. You are part of the children of God through Jesus Christ, and these restrictions don't apply to you anymore. Jesus had already made that clear in Mark 7, 19. The disciples heard him say it. They just let it go over their heads like so much else he said. Paul, uh, God is making sure now that Peter understands all food is okay for you now. And you and I sitting here are saying, well, hallelujah for bacon, right? Amen, fried shrimp. But that's not really what this is about. See, what God was doing was he understood that for a proud Jew like Peter, this was a boundary marker. You know what boundary markers are? Whatever club you're in, whatever group you're in, you have certain boundary markers. You have certain signs that says, hey, you're one of us. Sometimes it's stuff you wear, sometimes it's songs you sing, sometimes it's places you've been, but often it's stuff you won't do, especially in the church. We have our boundary markers, and it varies from church to church, right? There are certain things we won't do. 
Yeah, we're, we're the good people. We don't do that stuff. For Peter, one of his boundary markers was, I eat a kosher diet. When Peter walked down the streets of Jerusalem or any city where there, were, where there were Jews and Gentiles, he could look at Gentiles and say, those uncircumcised dogs eating that filthy pig meat, I'm glad I'm not one of them. And God is now taking that boundary marker away from him. He's saying, you know what, Peter, from now on, when your Gentile neighbor says, come on over and eat supper with us, you've got no excuse anymore. You go into that house and you sit down and you eat what you're fed because there are no more boundaries between Jew and Gentile anymore. I am not going to let you feel superior to these people anymore because they're my children too and I'm bringing them home through Jesus Christ. And to Peter's everlasting credit, he actually listened to God. Now God had to repeat the vision three times, but he listened. And when Cornelius' men showed up, Peter went with them. He went to Caesarea. Cornelius was excited. He gathered all of his family together. And so the house was full. Imagine being Peter. You've never walked into the house of a Gentile before. I'm sure he was as uncomfortable as he'd ever been in his life. I'm sure he's thinking, man, I'm glad my parents don't see me. He walked in there and he began to speak the word of Jesus Christ like he'd done so many times before. And to his amazement, those Gentiles in that room, all of them professed faith in Christ. And to his even greater amazement, what had happened to him on the day of Pentecost happened to those Gentiles that day. They all of a sudden started speaking in tongues. Now that doesn't happen every time in the book of Acts. I think God did that so that Peter would say, hey, there's no question about it. The Holy Spirit's in them just like he is in us. And that was important because when Peter got home to Jerusalem, his friend said, hey, we heard what you did. What are you thinking? You went and preached the gospel to Gentiles? What's the matter with you? And Peter said, guys, it wasn't my idea. God told me to. And by the way, the Holy Spirit fell on them just like he fell on us. And they said, well, I guess if the Holy Spirit says it's okay, it's okay. But even that wasn't the end of the battle because a few years later, and you're going to hear about this in a couple of weeks, Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas are sent by their church, the church in Antioch, to go through what we consider Europe today and just plant churches and spread the gospel. And they get reports. The churches in Antioch and Jerusalem get reports. Paul and Barnabas are going and they're spreading the gospel. And a lot of Jews are believing, but way more Gentiles are coming into the faith. And so the church has to have this big conference. That's in Acts chapter 15. The church gathers together. They have this big debate. Is it really okay... For people to follow the Jewish Messiah without becoming Jewish. Is it okay for a, a Gentile man to profess faith in Jesus and never get circumcised and never adopt our traditions? And, and the church is going back and forth on this. And they're, they're really at the point of stalemate when all of a sudden old Peter steps up and he says, guys, remember what happened at Cornelius' house? Those people didn't get circumcised. Those people didn't convert to Judaism. They just believed in Jesus and the Holy Spirit fell. So who are we to argue? And that won the day. But even then, here's the interesting thing. Get Galatians, 7, Galatians 2 says that Peter, Peter himself of all people backslid later on. Years later, he got it into his mind. You know, I'm not going to eat with Gentiles anymore. I'm just going to eat with my fellow Jewish believers. And in front of the entire church, Paul called him out. Now, don't you wish you could have seen that? Here's the two most prominent apostles of all time, and they're getting at it in front of the entire church. And Paul says to Peter, you're a hypocrite. You're expecting Gentiles to follow a law that you know you couldn't follow. And Peter listens for the second time. He is rebuked into repentance. 
And folks, as a person who, I did one of those DNA tests last year. I got not one drop of Israelite blood in me. There is no reason at all why I should be accepted by the Jewish Messiah into the family of God. And yet God in His, in His sovereignty has grafted me in by His grace. And He has convinced His church to accept me. And if you're like me and you're a Gentile, all you can say is hallelujah. Thank God we serve a God who knocks down barriers to bring people in. But there's still more barriers to break. And I want to talk about two. And this is not going to be comfortable. But we need to talk about them. There are at least two barriers that we're going to talk about. Well, there are two we're going to talk about. There are more. But two we're going to focus on today. And one is a racial barrier. 2,000 years later, 2,000 years after God said, Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither man nor woman, all are one are Christ Jesus. There's still a racial barrier. Race is still a problem for the church. And I know, I know people who look like me, we're still in the majority in our culture today, and we'd rather think that that is yesterday's news. Fifty years ago, we signed things like the Voting Rights Act and the I didn't sign it, but you know what I mean. Fifty years ago, laws were passed that struck down the Jim Crow laws. Hallelujah for that. Equality at last. And yet, you know, you and I can sit here and say, we don't have a race problem, man. I, I, I don't hold race, racial prejudice against anybody. I don't use racial slurs. I don't hang around with anybody who does, so what's the problem? And yet when you talk to our friends or talk to our brothers of other races, they'll say, yeah, yeah, there's a problem. Absolutely there's a problem. This doesn't feel like my country. It feels like your country. And our calling is to be ministers of reconciliation. Our calling is to be peacemakers, according to Matthew 5. Our calling is to love our neighbor. When you love your neighbor... And they say, I'm hurting. You don't say, no, nah, you're not. You're fine. Trust me. That's not love. Love listens. Love takes action. And let's be brutally honest. The church on this issue has often not been where it should be. The church has often been slow to advance the cause of equality and harmony. The church, including the church I grew up in, has often been behind the non-Christian culture in bringing about reconciliation between the races. And 50 years since Martin Luther King was killed, his words are still true. 11 o'clock is still the most segregated hour in America. And it ought to make us sad. It ought to make us angry. I love every single person in this church. I love seeing you every Sunday. I don't want any of you to leave but it makes me sad to look around and see almost everybody in this room looks like me. It shouldn't be that way. Number one, that's not the way the kingdom of God looks. Number two, the world needs to see people of all kinds coming together. The world needs to see reconciliation in the church because it's not happening in the world. That's what happened in the first century. Don't you know how powerful that was when people saw Jew and Gentile worshiping together, loving each other? didn't happen anywhere else but within the church. It needs to happen here too. And I know, I know it's difficult. Listen, I've been part of two different churches that confronted the same issue. Two different churches that were in a racially diverse area. And one chose to ignore that. One chose to say, that's just not where my heart is. 
These are good people, folks. These are people I love to this day. But they were not willing to do the hard work. And, and another church I was a part of that said, yes, yes, we will embrace this. Yes, we will do what it takes. And there were some, some intentional, difficult decisions that were made. And there were a lot of strong personal relationships where people said, I work with someone who looks different than me. I'm, I'm a neighbor with someone. I'm going to get to know them. And there's going to be love shared, so much love, so much authenticity that that person is going to say, hey, even though I would rather be with people who look like me. This person loves me so much, I'm going to go to church with her, with him. And we saw that church grow more and more multi-ethnic. Folks, listen, we know that Conroe's growing. We know that Conroe's growing leaps and bounds. And some of the people moving here don't look like us. And God is going to reach those people through somebody. And I want to be part of that. I don't want to be the church that God says, well, I wish First Baptist was part of this. Oh, well, I guess I'll have to use these churches over here instead. I want to be part of what God is doing. And if there's a part of you, I just want you to really be honest with yourself. If there's a part of you that, like my brothers in that other church, that just says, I, just, I, can't, I can't get there with you, Jeff. That's just not where my heart is. Then confess that to God, because that's where his heart is. Can you see that? That's definitely where his heart is. And it's not easy. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen in a year or two. But it happens when we're led by the Spirit of God. That barrier can and will come down. We are the first Baptist church in the center of downtown Conroe. And we should be a church where every person can walk in and look around and go, yeah, there's people like me here. Yeah, I can be part of this family. Let's pray for that. Let's make a commitment to that. And we'll get there. There's a second barrier. At least as imposing as that one. And that's a cultural barrier. I started off talking about uh, dispute over sexuality. You know, we as Christians, I'm over 40. Let's just say that. Um, so for longer than I've been alive, we as Christians have been heatedly debating issues like that in the public square. All kinds of issues. We've gotten active in politics. We've, we've argued. Now that there's social media, boy, we debate and we argue and we send out memes and we retweet stuff and we get angry and chain emails. And Here's the thing. As good as our intentions have been at, at, at many times, we have failed to communicate that our God loves the broken. We have failed to communicate love. We've been all about the truth, but we haven't been about love. You ask a person who's uh, of a different lifestyle than you, a different religion than you, ask them, do you think people in churches love you? They'll say, no, they can't stand me. And therefore, they think our God can't stand them. We've been fighting a culture war when we should have been missionaries. We've been treating people like enemies when we should have been treating them like long-lost brothers and sisters whose father desperately yearns for them to come home. We've been trying to out-argue people instead of trying to persuade them. We've been trying to win fights instead of trying to win people. And it's time to remember that our calling is to be missionaries. See, the early church had that same decision to make. 
You think Paul, a former Pharisee, didn't find it disgusting the way his Roman neighbors lived? Their ethics, their values, their speech, their religion, you don't think those things offended him? And yet Paul didn't go around trying to reform the behavior of his pagan neighbors. He didn't stand outside uh, bathhouses and condemn the men going in there. He didn't pick it outside of arenas and theaters and say, you're all sinners and you need to change. No, he, he knew my job is to win them to my Lord. He's the one who can change them. I can't. Why should they listen to what I have to say about morality? They need to come to my Savior. That was the way the church lived. See, the the early church was a church that realized early on our calling is to be missionaries. Our calling is to represent Him in our community. And they did that in three ways. Number one, they lived among their unbelieving neighbors with uncompromising integrity. If you were a, a Roman in those days, a pagan, and you... You may have thought your Christian neighbors were nuts, but you couldn't argue with the way they lived. Number two, they loved their neighbors in practical ways. There are writings from the first and second century where you can, you can hear these Roman politicians and even priests who are writing to one another saying, I don't know what to do. The Christians love our poor more than we do. The Christians help our sick more than we do. What are we supposed to do about that? And number three, They spoke the truth about Christ intentionally and in ways their neighbors could understand. They realized early on, you don't have to be ordained, you don't have to be trained, you don't have to be equipped, you just tell your story. You just talk to your neighbors and you share with them what Christ has done for you. And you share it in ordinary, everyday language and the Holy Spirit does the rest. And those three things that I just mentioned, turned the entire world upside down in a generation. Within three centuries, the whole Roman Empire was transformed. How does that happen? It happens because God's behind it. God's the God who knocks down barriers. And it can still happen in us today. We can become that kind of church. In fact, I think we're destined to be that kind of church. And I've got news for you. If the American church doesn't embrace that vision, you know what's going to happen? We're done. We are done. We've got a generation or two, and then we're done. I don't mean Christianity's dead, because God's not going to stop. It's just the people winning people to Christ two generations from now will be missionaries from places like China and Brazil and Sub-Saharan Africa, places where the church right now is doing what they're called to do. So God wins either way. But I want to see us be a part of that. I want to see us... And every church that preaches in the name of Jesus reclaim God's vision for who we were called to be. Let me just close with this. In the 40s, when uh, the Nazis invaded France, a lot of Jews, most of the Jews in the country fled. They, they got out of, out of the country as quick as they could. They knew what was happening. There was a family called, their last name was Jaffo, J-O-F-F-O, and they couldn't afford to leave. So what they did was a very desperate, courageous thing. They took their sons. Maurice was 12. Joseph was 10. They put them on a train. They handed them all the money they owned. They said, listen, boys, ride this as far as you can. Get out of town. Get out of this country. Get into Spain. We have relatives there. Find them. If you can find them, spend the rest of the war with them. At the end of the war, we'll try to find you. Just imagine being a mom or dad doing that. 
So Maurice and Joseph get on the train. They ride it as far as they can. Then they get out. They start to walk. They end up getting to the border. They pay a guy to take them across the border. Basically takes all their money. Gets them across the border. They end up in a barn. It's midnight, so they they bed down for the night. In the morning, they're going to get up and try to find their, their relatives. So they lay down to sleep. In the middle of the night, Joseph wakes up, notices his brother is gone. But there's a note there. He picks it up. The note says, I'll be back in the morning. Don't worry. So Joseph goes back to sleep. Sunlight comes streaking in. He wakes up, and the barn is full of people. And there's Maurice. He says, what happened? And Maurice said, well, I figured since we know how to get here now, we can help others. Isn't that not the perfect picture of what we are? Not a single one of us saved ourselves. Nobody in this room said, you know, I think Jesus is the answer and I'm going to follow him. Every single one of us in this room was won to Christ by someone. Jesus sent, the Holy Spirit sent someone to tell you the gospel and so you now know how to get there. You know the road to salvation. So it's our job to tell others. It's our job to let them know. Because someday Jesus is coming back and he's going to stand on the world stage and say, I'm back. And in that moment, you and I are going to want to be able to say, in the midst of all that rejoicing, Lord, we did our best. Everyone we know, everyone we know heard at least had the opportunity to be part of the celebration today. Don't you want to be a part of that too?